three, two, one, roll the f Welcome back everybody, I'm Simon Severino, your host. And today we explore with the head of DevRel of Ably Real Time, why you sell more based on pain versus aspiration, how you can fail with the best tech in the room, and what stories you need to tell. Welcome everybody, Ben Gamble. Hey, welcome and thank you so much for having me. So cool to have you here. Ben, what is a DevRel? So this is like this has become one of those interesting questions that keeps resonating. And like if you search it on Twitter, you'll see about twenty or thirty threads in the last three weeks about it. So DevRel is sort of born out this frustration that most developers hate marketing. Like if you send classical marketing materials from what like demand gen used to generate, you basically land on deaf ears and often alienate developers to your product. So if your product is for developers, you need to get them to trust you. And to be honest, it effectively is reframing what marketing is and what it's for to basically apply to a developer-driven audience. So what we do is we go out to a community and we basically do two things. We become a trusted voice in that community of both what we can and more importantly, what we can't do because everything has to be based from a position of trust. And secondly, we're there to reliably inform and teach people of what we can do. I know that second part sounds like classical marketing because quite frankly, it is. And the point is that it has to come from a place of honesty, a place of faith, and a place of kind of true competence. So DevRel teams mostly consist of developers, of people who write documentation, people who can do training. And you're there to both grow a community of people who are interested in your product, but also just to make sure the users of your product understand what the possibilities are. You're not there to try and you know drive sales or anything else. You're there to drive awareness and drive usage. Right, usage can become sales, but if you don't have usage, you're not going to sell a developer product. And it seems to work for you guys because Ably just got a Series B fund. Congrats! We did, we did. Yeah. It was great. And you did party hard. Tell us about that. Yeah, so we raised seventy million dollars uh, a little earlier in the year, and we've just come back from a two-day away summit uh, where we all went uh, uh, glamping or posh camping as it's often referred to for two days we did things such as water sports and go and we built these kind of push go-karts with crazy decorations that there was some ambitious morning yoga the night after the party as well which should we simply say was not well attended <laughs> as usual yeah it was a lot of people I'm sitting nothing. down going maybe later <laughs> <laughs> And I'm super excited to discuss with you what you have learned over the last years and decades. And, and you have brought with us some three really cool CEO tips. And the first one is why we should sell based on pain versus aspiration. Can you unpack that? Sure. So this comes bound to kind of like, particularly on our most technical products, right? Is if you're selling to a company who has aspirations, there is no, the drive to change is dictated by whatever their direction is. And if that direction is merely an aspiration to, let's say, move into a marketplace or to just grow, the ways to solve that are literally infinite. It means that, you know, there is no concrete reasoning to buy you rather than a competitor, even if you're the best in the room. What happens on, in the case of pain is 
they need to fix it, right? Whether it's they have too much frictions, they need a new marketing automation tool, or whether they're literally failing under scale, so they need something to help their software scale up. Or in some cases, it's even more obvious than that. Like, uh, we have too many people, we need a better office space. So something like a WeWork exists. If you sell based on pain, you know that whenever they get what you've got, there is no risk that value will not be discovered. Like the big barrier to sales is realizing value, right? You don't buy something when you think it's going to be valuable, right? And then otherwise you're just hoping that someone might buy you because you might be valuable next year. On average, if you sell that way, you probably end up won't getting a repeat or that customer will drop. Particularly at Ably, it's based on the fact that people come to us when they realize, oh crap, we can't do this ourselves. This is really hard. And then they realize we can take it away. And then it's like, well, we can focus on what we want to do rather than just that horrible tech problem in the corner. Beautiful. And you say that you have seen people fail with the best tech in the room. How is that possible? Oh, it is. this is the kind of dark secret I've discovered through my own startups and others. It's genuine, like having the best tech as in like the most competent engineers building the smartest thing does not matter, right? What matters is, is it the right tech? And you can basically go out to market. And in my case, it was going out to market with, let's say like logistics software at the time, and we could shave the most cost off, but was that stuff easy to use? No, it required more understanding. It wasn't the easiest to integrate with because it expected so much of our clients, right? And to be honest, they weren't ready for it, right? We we were somewhere between 10 years ahead of what the curve needed and, and maybe 30, to be honest. Like we had people using physical AS 400s, like they would have been happy with an Excel plugin and they would have probably paid us more for that than we were willing to charge for our current product. And it's like having the best tech in the room means you've invested a lot of money and effort and it's expensive to build. The best engineers are expensive and you will fail because you might run out of money to do the marketing job. You need to sell the best tech in the room before you ever get to the market. I love it. We had yesterday, and I'm, I'm, I want to hear more about your, your specific experiences. We had yesterday a, uh, one of the global futurists that is booked to tell people what's going to happen next. And he said, the way he can predict like 14 years before what's what's going to work in his mm -hmm. books is a simple framework. And the first thing is what is a hard trend and what's a soft trend? And he only goes for hard trends. Hard trends he defines as it's gonna happen no matter what. It's just a question of when. And then there are soft trends, it might happen. Like, so right now Bitcoin is a hard trend, but you know, many altcoins are a soft trend. And so he goes only after one heart and then goes that trajectory. And I guess if we merge these two concepts and uh, if we say, okay, we are going to heavily invest in this technology and be frontier there because it's going to happen no matter what, it's just a question of time, then you might even incorporate some Excel stuff temporarily. <laughs> But on that path, you can push forward and you can with with lower risk, really go all in. But tell us about the real stories that you have experienced, because this is the best when you hear the real entrepreneurial stories. 
So, like, oh, so the hard soft trend stuff. So, way back when I was big in augmented reality, like, I, I went, like, my first job ever, I basically spent my time as a consultant basically trying to sell some of the bigger corporates and that AR was the future. Like, everyone from, like, the board of Unilever to, like, a bunch of med tech and defense crowd on this. And everyone was like, wow, this is a great thing. And, like, the running joke was every bit of the tech was 10 years old at the time. And, the funny thing was, it looked like it was the future. And then I, you know, went out on my own, built a startup around it. And, you know, we were one of the trending Google Glass apps at the time, which is a complete blast from the past these days. I know it's crazy. You can go see our old YouTube uh, video of what we put out for the actual app itself back in 2013 or something crazy. But the fun thing there was like augmented reality, I think, is a hard trend. But my gosh, are we not there yet? Like, if you start to look at what the actual barriers to entry are, they are huge. Is the industrial applications happening now? Oh, gosh, yeah. Booming industry. Facebook is hoovering up every decent AR engineer there is, right? And quite, quite fundamentally, VR is basically just the transitionary period. And you can see this happening now. And in my, you know, in what I do now at Ably, like, we are a way to make websites and, and user experiences real time, as in you click a button, the thing happens there and then, you get a response there and then. Everyone wants that, that's a given. We know they want this because quite literally every single UI developer, UX developer wants their stuff to be instant. They don't want people waiting for the wrong reasons. So we know it's a hard trend, but are people ready? The answer is sort of. And it's that kind of like saying the right thing versus like saying like, how real time do you need it? Is always now the question. Somebody showed me a website and I was shocked because I realized that websites are an old technology that will soon be overcome. And for me, it was new. So for many, it will be new what we unpack now. How will websites of the future look like in the metaverse, in the... You get ah, yes. instead of a representation of the reality. So what's going on there? So the metaverse is like the most fascinating thing because it harkens back right to, you know, the like kind of the sci-fi vision of the, in the 80s of things like William Gibson and Neuromancer to the Matrix in the, in the, you know, in the ni- late 90s to Ready Player One in the kind of mid-2000s as a book and more recently as the movie. And like there are companies going out and trying this. Hell, I worked at a couple of them, like Improbables, big vision is this meta is basically the metaverse the idea of being able to simulate enough stuff that you can actually immerse yourself in it and what is a web page a web page was effectively it's a compromise the whole technology is just a compromise on what is the easiest lowest common denominator tech stack we could give someone and then it from that point onwards it's been built upon and built upon and built upon and is it fragile no because it's actually because of the amount of billions of dollars spent but it is starting to look like there will be a shift, though I reckon it's going to be an embedding and a twisting and a mixing rather than a replace. Like when you're in this metaverse type thing and your web page has to be more than just text on a page, it's more than just shiny buttons. It needs to respond. And this is where things like what are the rich APIs you have? Like, you know, I've got an Alexa behind my head somewhere. And like that is an example of something trying to be more than just you know, another user interface you've got to look at and click, 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 click on, right? You can talk to it. It will answer you. It might even interrogate you with some questions to get a better understanding of what you want. And as we move to these kind of more 
should we say interactive experiences and more well natural to be honest experiences we're going to get to this point where there are points sometimes information that do and don't work and that's where the fascinating meld between the true metaverse everyone kind of imagines like the star trek computer versus what actually we know works like spreadsheets are still around for a reason and i'm going to keep coming back to those it's like they are still the gold standard of putting numbers in front of someone for a good reason the spreadsheets are amazing and when people ask me sometimes but simon can you explain what is bitcoin and because you're bullish but come on can you explain it to a kid and i would say it's a spreadsheet with one very clear set of rules and that is fixed and it's transparent and everybody can retrace everything and you cannot remove anything and it's limited it's a spreadsheet <laughs> imagine a spreadsheet where you are not allowed to edit the cells after you've wrote them <laughs> exactly. for think how many calculations you got to do to guarantee that you and i don't edit the same cell exactly and so and it's still out there and i'm still using it and uh, I'm, we are partner with Google and they tell us how to do it even better and that my Google Sheets should be even more like this and like that. But it's still the basic great technology. Hmm. Why? Very Why? much, yeah. Yeah. Sorry? Why, actually? Uh, so, like, so the thing about it is, is that, like, what, what people need, this comes, it comes back to a bit of what people need, right? Is we want the ability to see things in front of us. We want to be able to manipulate the data. We want to be able to then reformat it rapidly. Like the whole Tableau promise, if you remember Tableau is like, it was to be able to take your data and then rapidly be able to create your charts, but that's never quite enough. You often need to run a quick function on that, like sum it, subtract, you know, subtract what I believe to be true or the convert or, you know, like maybe I'm about 20% confident that that number is true. So I'll make a new version of that data below it with 20% less on that column. And now I can then do it again. It's the ability to say, I've given you the raw data and enough confidence that I can go backtrace your math, but I can then do my own. That's why I think spreadsheets have just become so unbelievable. Also, they tend to work. Like, you know, most replacements I've seen do they actually work is a question I'm always asking. Maybe it's the implicit trust of, you know, now close to 30 years of development or more. It means that like I have an implicit trust. That if someone gives me a spreadsheet product, it probably does what it says it does. Yeah. Now I'm, I'm just brainstorming with you, but I guess the magic of it is it, it has the layer of data, but also of insight and learning that you want. Yeah. Even the layer of wisdom, if you want, because it's collaborative. And so you might enter your own wisdom from your practices. So it's data, insights, and collaboration. Yeah. And then you can also do display as well right at the end, because then you can graph it up and then it allows you to extract. And that lasts super like... Visual, super yeah. easy to visualize changes up and down by colors. And that's what you want to know. Are, are we winning? Are we losing? Are it's going up? Exactly. But then interrogate it once you've got past that. So you, it's almost like kind of like the two-way street, isn't it? You get more and more simplified, extracted value, just that big headline, green, red number, followed by, great, it's green. Now, why is it green? And you can go back down that hill and understand all the details. Yeah. And you can zoom in and out in a couple of minutes mm. in these both, both, both um, layers of understanding. And so you're building things that will change the way uh, websites are done. Tell us. Websites and apps and things like that. Like, so 
if you've all, most people have used HubSpot, like this. every single time you see a little HubSpot chat icon, that is connected variably to them. And the idea there is it allows you like instantaneous stuff. There are other applications which are built on top of us, which allow you to collaborate. So literally like a Google Sheet or a Google Doc, you can literally, if you hadn't, like if, if you build one with an Ably connection, then we can give you that way to do deterministic linking of things together. The ability to, pardon me, add that real-time aspect. So if someone changes the spreadsheet, the update can come over the wire. You can literally connect up stock feeds. We actually host a bunch of like live stream Bitcoin prices and other coin prices just because it's fun. Like we've got a couple of example apps now on our GitHub where you can just download and go and use our free data because we want to show you what you can do when things can change in front of you. So if you imagine your spreadsheet, right? It's great, but it tends to be static. Now, if we give you a live feed at the top, so you have one page where you basically go, give me a snapshot. And then you have the next page, which is, let's see what my model does. And the ability to have that data in a reliable way, a secure way, in a fast way, and to any number of people is that kind of promise. Like everyone, think, everyone thinks like event-driven stuff and they say Kafka. And the answer is, yeah, Kafka is wonderful, but it's inside your data center. What happens when you users around the world? What happens when it's no longer really about a secure connection? It's about, I'm over the internet on my iPad, but I'm on the beach in Bali because it's the modern way of working. You need a connection to that person. And that's what we exist to do, that, that, that last 100,000 miles, effectively, because it's from that wall in the data center to the outside world. So it's often filled as last mile, but it's really the last 100,000. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm so curious who you nominate for a strategy award after one word from our sponsors. Hey, if you like the tools, go grab them for free at strategysprints.com slash tools. When everybody zigs, this person is zagging. But from your perspective, they're doing the right thing. Who do you pick? So I'm going to pick a guy called Nick from a company called QuestDB. Like everyone has been moving up the stack over the last few years, right? Everyone's like more abstractions, more kind of high level concepts. And what that's meant is there's a growing number of products which are very easy to use and often quite rich in their usage, but the fundamentals haven't moved on. It's like more and more companies are built on top of, should we simply say, proven tech rather than saying let's actually change the basics. And like what the Quest DB team have went went done is they've said, actually, the basics aren't necessarily good. Time has moved on. Like the chips they were built for no longer are really used anymore. Let's go back and actually re-engineer the absolute core layer for speed. Um, they've done a frankly incredible job of simply saying, if it's right at the bottom and all the building blocks are right, everything on top sort of matters a little bit less because we know it'll work. So they've re-engineered a full database layer from like literally the storage upwards to be fast. And it's so fast that it almost like there's so many things that don't matter so much from a usability standpoint because you can do the simple thing. You don't have to be clever about usage. It's just fast. And they've gone the other way. Like, They've not tried to be like integrate every single thing in the world. They've just gone, nah, we'll give you the most standard interface we could think of and we'll make everything below the line. And that's what we'll do. And they've gone below the line rather than above, which is where they've completely zigged rather than zagged. Wow. Three books that inspired you. Okay. The biggest one is definitely Predictable Rationality uh, by Dan Ariely. 
um a wonderful like it's a snapshot tour of a bunch of the kind of just like the way people behave and why and understand and gives you just little insights into how like, cultural thinking and behavioral economics affects things like the follow-up book if you're going down that road be nudge but predictable rationality is like the free economics of that world it's the intro and it gives you that enough flavor to see that buying decisions thought decisions and just general decision making processes are completely predictable if wildly irrational and it just helps you think next one would be the lean startup because i still think that like the classic six sigma books lean books and all those things they have merit but quite frankly no one really like no one at least in our world tends to work in a 20,000 person organization anymore right <laughs> and as things have become smaller and more agile we kind of never really changed that thinking. Like the theory of constraint from the fifties is still true, but the modern versions of that. And like the last one is still probably the Phoenix project, right? Like mm -hmm. I don't, I, I think like it's a rare insight book of what technology does from a business focused point of view. Now, as I said earlier about, you can lose with the best tech in the room. You lose if your tech is the best, but doesn't solve a problem. It doesn't solve the core of the problem or it doesn't solve the problem fast enough. So in the Phoenix project, it's about this out of control. It's a story based about an out of control, overspending, overrunning technology behemoth of a project, which doesn't need to exist anymore. And I've sort of gone past its original remit and is still late. And because of the main point of view character is not a technologist, he's, he's a manager and a senior kind of stakeholder in the business. But because of that, the actual technical details have been removed because so they're specific to a company. Therefore, they're irrelevant to the story, in my opinion. And it's the one thing I wish every engineer would read uh, because it has because it's not about engineering. It's about what engineering is for. And everyone wants to go build the next React app, the next, you know, the next thing which is all service, the next thing on Kubernetes. And it's like, forget that for a minute. What are you solving and why? Tell me why this exists. Tell me why it's important. And the takeaway from the Phoenix project is not about just engineering good practice. It's about what is value. So predictable rationality. Things are highly emotional, but you, they have patterns. And uh, here you can study the patterns. Lean startup. Uh, the industrial age is over, the concepts um, and principles apply, but how do I apply to the digital, to the lean age? And, um, and the, the Phoenix project, what is the role of technology in business and, um, and how to tackle that? Beautiful. What can technology do for business? Yes. Business? Beautiful. Thank you so much. And um, so when you look forward, uh, you just hit 70 million that you are going to invest now to do things even more awesome. Uh, what excites you? What are you going to do with the 70 million? So we really want to like, so we have some goals around how many people we can connect. I think, I think so on our, on the little plinths we got sent out, like on, our, on each of our little bunks in the tents we're in was, so we've connect, we, we connect about 200, we've connected about, we, we, our estimates are about 260 million people. So we're objectives like to act each month, at least 1 billion people per month is the goal, right? Through our services. Cause we are the thing that other things are built on. Now, what that means is we want to basically help like, you know, push forward in everything collaborative that happens on the internet, whether it's on a mobile phone, whether it's on a website, whether it's on an application on your device, whether it's an IOT device. 
And we have our whole thing there is like by doing it with scalability, reliability, and durability, and and speed. And the key thing about that is is like we want to make sure that we don't lose sight of what people are doing. And that's where the investment becomes a big thing. Sure, we could burn all that money into a big lot of tech spend, make something super clever, and we will to a certain extent. But it's really about keeping us, our eyes on what is happening and why and what's happening next. So things like collaborative frameworks, we're looking to build into those, support what already exists and plug on top of it. Things like the rest of the event-driven ecosystem, whether it is high-end databases, you know, event streaming platforms like Kafka and all those things. We plug things together. We need to integrate. We need to be there where the data is and get it to where it needs to be. That sounds exciting. And where does Ben Gamble hang out? Where can people find you? So I am so I am I am now entirely remotely based, which basically means I am mo I, I am very occasionally around around the London shortage scene, but mostly I am reachable on social media. Find me on Twitter is the easiest thing, as I nearly will always respond <laughs> at, at Ben Gamble7 or on LinkedIn and also Ben Gamble7. I'm always myself because I find that otherwise I will forget my own username. <laughs> <laughs> same same thing before. I'm in all these Discord and Telegram uh, worlds where everybody is, is called Wolf77. And I, and, and I go, I cannot remember all his name. I'm just Simon everywhere. Exactly. Same on Discord, by the way. If you find me on Discord, I am I am Ben Gamble Seven. I believe there's still a cherry pizza meme at the start of my name from a from a joke from a, from a game studio I used to work at, but I've been too lazy to change. <laughs> Beautiful. And um, who should be my next guest? Well, actually, if I could, I, I'll, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll introduce you to Nick. Uh, see what he says because, like, his his journey has been crazy. He's been through a few startups there, and there, and QuestDB, their time at YC, and they're you know, and what they're doing now is quite an impressive journey. Oh yeah, I'm gonna meet the Strategy Award nominee. Beautiful. Yeah. And uh, thank you, Ben, for being on the show, sharing your journey, your wisdom with us. And please come back soon. Thank you very much. It's been great to be here. Avoid trying to do thousands of things that doesn't work. We have 274 templates for your business success. Reach your ambitious goals with one-on-one -on -one sprint coach. We double your revenue in 90 days.